podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and today we are joined by a, another special guest, Robert Stagno, who is, let me give a little bit of your background and then, you know, you can kind of jump in and, and fill in some of the gaps for us. Uh, but you are the CEO of Sterling Woods Group and also a fellow podcast host, uh, the host of CEO Campfire Chat and uh, a former uh, McKinsey, I assume, uh, consultant, but I, maybe I shouldn't assume that For, former. That's right. Okay. And uh, you have worked at, as a senior executive at several private equity owned businesses, including America's test kitchen. We may have to, we may have to talk a little bit more about that. I'm interested. Right. And you have, you know, in your role, you've had helped a lot of companies, including Visa, Pepsi, Comcast, and just a, a host of others. So I, I will let you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and I'll, I will stop talking. So Rob, welcome first off. And you want to tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I think, uh, I think you nailed the professional uh, side of things. Just personally, uh, I live in West Hartford, Connecticut. We have two girls, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Uh, and I guess um, in terms of uh, no, when it's not COVID time, uh, I'm a big fan of playing uh, pub trivia with my wife when we can get a babysitter. <laughs> uh, very nice. Is there are there some good pubs in uh, in Connecticut that you go to, or is it uh, uh, just are there a lot of choices, or are there a specific one that uh, that you prefer? Uh, there are a lot of choices. I think it's fun to go to. There's a lot of breweries here. Okay. Craft brewing is is big in the area, so a lot of a lot of those places have have trivia night from time to time. Nice. Very nice. All right. And four and one, the, that sounds like fun age for kids. My, my, uh, my kids are, are six and eight. And so the, the young kids, it's a, it's a fun time, right? Yeah. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is, it is. You, you can, yeah, you've got uh, you've got a nice office background. Um, obviously, not those listening can't can't see the office background, but I've I've got like a number of toys. My kids are in and out, and so like they they leave uh, stuffed animals and stuff, which are in my background right now. But it's a uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Nice collection. Yeah, it's a nice. It makes a nice collection. I have to like cart things off periodically, but we we have fun. Uh, the joys of the joys of of working at home right now, right? Oh yeah. Cool. Well, like we mentioned, um, well, first off, America's test kitchen. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. I wanted to, to ask about that before we moved on. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite, quite amazing. Uh, the effort that the test cooks go through to build recipes. Yeah. Uh, we would spend over $10,000 in development costs for each recipe. Uh, and it's, it's really scientific. There's 50 test cooks. They have to love it. But then the final check is actually the audience. And we had the friends of the test kitchen draft recipes are sent to them before they're published. And if 80% of them do not tell us, yes, I'll make it again. It gets scrapped. They'll either never get published or it has to go back to the, to the, the drawing room, you know, back to the uh, cutting room floor and uh, be be re-engineered. So uh, it's, it's truly a great uh, story though, in terms of listening to the customer and figuring out exactly what they want and having them pressure test it before you go into the open, uh, into the wild with it. (laughs) Uh, that sounds, that sounds awesome. That sounds one, like a lot of fun, but also super high pressure. Uh, that is a lot of investment for, for some, 
for the the work that goes into it. That that's incredible. All right. Well, I'm I'm excited for today's episode because we are talking about a topic that uh, you know we haven't covered as much on on this podcast. And so Rob is joining us to talk a lot about customer segmentation and you know some go to market strategies. And so we're, you know we're going to dive into that topic because it is. I think super, super important and also super interesting. And I don't know if there's anybody who can talk to us more about this than Rob. So like, thank you for being here. And I'm really, really excited to to talk about this today. So to get us started, maybe you can tell us more about customer segmentation and why it is so important. I think that the, the headline there is... If, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to no one. Uh, and uh, the, the, there's really some, a lot of data to support the importance of customer segmentation. So a lot is at stake. First of all, Bain did a study and found that customers who properly use customer segmentation or companies that properly use customer segmentation grow three times as fast as, as those who do not. And then the Harvard Business School found that whenever there's a new product failure, 95% of the time, it's because of a problem with market segmentation. It was either going after the wrong customer or it was going after the right customer, but with the, solving a problem that didn't matter to them. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's very important. And sadly, when in our own research, we found that only 2% of companies do everything exactly right. So 98% of companies have an opportunity to improve how they develop and use customer segmentation. Wow. Uh, that is... <laughs> That's that one. That's massive. Like two uh, percent are are doing it right, and everybody else is doing it in in some way wrong. And so there's room to improve. So I mean, one that shows just the the value in understanding it and doing it right. Uh, so I guess tell us a little bit more about that specifically. Like, what are the opportunities to improve how customer segmentation is done and how we use it? Oh, um, we've spotted five of the most common offenders. Uh, number one is simply you don't have segmentation uh, and you'd be surprised. We, we think 30 to 40% of companies actually don't have any segmentation. They think that their ideal customer is anyone with a pulse. Uh, so as a product development person, you, you got to know that that's, it's really tough to develop a product if, if you're not sure, uh, who it's for. Um, and sometimes that's because maybe the founder had an awesome idea at first that solved the problem that he or she had, and it, it got some initial market traction, but no one's really taken a step back to say, okay, who, who really is the ideal customer? The, the second uh, problem that we found is that uh, customers uh, or that companies only use what we might call a rudimentary segmentation angle, meaning, hey, yeah, we have segmentation and we focus on the fintech sector, or we focus on small businesses, or we sell into the CIO. And these are all better than doing nothing. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I don't want to discourage you. I'm not saying don't do that, uh, but there's, there's a lot more money being left on the table. The, the, the third one we've seen is uh, uh, it's uh, not having any, I'm uh, oh, sorry, it's, it's, uh, it's looking at the averages. And so sometimes people say, hey, we, we do some segmentation, we do some surveys, uh, but uh, we're just looking at the average customer. So we found our ideal customer, but we're just looking at the average. They're not acknowledging that that average is made up of actually three, four, five different types of customers. And in some funny cases, we actually find that the average doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a math problem that you know, when you average out the, the three or four different types of customers you have, you create this Frankenstein customer that doesn't actually exist. 
So we, we highly uh, advise that clients think about having more than one ideal customer type within their market. Usually three to five there are. Um, otherwise, you could be targeting someone that that's not a real person. Okay. No, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. The, the fourth one uh, we found is that it's not data validated. And this usually happens when, uh, when you bring in a marketing agency, you have to redo your website, uh, or sometimes you have, you know, product development consultant come in and say, Hey, you need personas and people sit in a boardroom and spend an hour and have some fun. And there's usually some interesting exercises and creative brainstorming sessions. But what we found is that if it's not validated by data, there's two problems. Uh, one is that, uh, you, you, uh, may have missed some key hidden, we call them hidden whales. There may be some segments out there that you haven't thought of. Uh, and, uh, there may be only a small percentage of your customer base now, but they actually are really interested in what you, what you're offering or will offer with a new product. Uh, but you're, they're, they're underrepresented, uh, and management teams don't think about them when they do undata driven segmentation. Um, and the other problem is actually, we find that there's a lot of overconfidence. So a lot of times segments are created in these brainstorming sessions that aren't actually interested in the product. It's a little bit of wishful thinking. And unfortunately we find about a third of the made up personas are not actually interested in your, in your product. Uh, you want them to be interested. Like I, you know, I want Salesforce and visa and you know, all these big companies to be my clients, but if they're not actually uh, really a good fit for me, it's just wishful thinking. So the data brings everyone back down to earth, identifies the missing the hidden, the hidden whales, uh, and also is a reality check for, for against wishful thinking. Yeah. The, the, that is so interesting. Cause I feel like looking back at the segmentation efforts that just across a career and across like everything that we've done, I can just pick out different times that like we've or companies or teams have fallen victim to all of these, whether it's like mm -hmm. no segmentation, which ha happens or just rudimentary segmentation or averaging, like, you know, here's like, like you were saying, like, here's kind of a conglomerate of a whole bunch of things. And I feel like we were actually just talking about that one today where it's like, here's a kind of a, a persona of somebody, but it's like, no, that's, that's really like three different groups put together. Like that's, and we literally were looking at it like, that's not one, that's not one group. That's like multiple groups that have been lumped together. Why is, why did anybody think that would make sense? And then not using the data and then the overconfidence, like you said, um, in, in looking at that and in the experience that you had, are there times that those come out more frequently or is it, you know, do, do different groups fall victim to, you know, some of those problems more frequently, or is it, is it common to have all of them? Like what has been your experience? Yeah, I think it's common to uh, common to have multiple issues there. I think uh, in terms of uh, I, th I think earlier stage high growth companies tend to fall into the our persona is the founder. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's common there. I think for uh, bigger, more established companies, it's more of that average is live problem where they 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 have a lot of data and maybe they look mm -hmm. at it, but they're only looking at in aggregate and, and by, by breaking it down, there's a lot more insights to be had there. Um, so I think depending on your stage of company, those, those are the two biggest problems to be aware of. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. So once you, once you kind of acknowledge, uh, some of these problems, how, how can you start to overcome them and, and identify like where the problems are and, you know, where you can do better about segmentation and, and just basically improve on your process and improve on what you're doing to better segment uh, your customers and your potential customers. 
Yeah. The, the, the short answer, very short answer <laughs> is just go ask them. Uh, so maybe a little more elaboration on yeah. that one uh, is, is do a, a, invest in a proper market research project, both the qualitative and the quantitative rounds. So go out and talk to your customers, really get them to tell the story about their, their buying journey, what they were considering, what problems they were trying to solve, why those problems were high stakes for them, uh, what, what they considered, what they thought about you, what ultimately motivated them to say yes, and really document that. Then validate it though quantitatively. And the quantitative piece uh, is really, really important. Uh, and I highly recommend working with firms who specialize in doing that instead of trying to DIY it, because I've seen a lot of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, rookie mistakes made, uh, when people, it seems, Hey, I can just get type form or mail, uh, or survey monkey or something and, and rip this out myself. I think just do your homework, do your research, bring in a third party. If you don't have someone on the team to do that, right. Uh, especially on the back end, once you get the survey results, this is where you're going to want to apply some machine learning principles, uh, K-means clustering, principal component analysis, things like that to really let the computers build the segments. And then the last step would be to personify them. So it's great that the computer and data science can build the segments so that they're statistically stable and that they're, they're validated, but you always need to put the human edge edge back on them. Uh, and that's, that's actually a lot of fun is having a workshop where you, you get your, your team together and you, you, you look at the results and then you, you, you name the segment, you figure out what they would listen to in their car, you figure out what they might read for fun, what they might do as a hobby and really bring the segments to life. Okay. Yeah. I know that, uh, that is definitely, I think a great step where you actually start to, <laughs> you go out and find the information qualitatively quantify a lot of it and then bring a lot of qualitative back into it as you, yeah. as you make it human again. So the, uh, that's, that's a really interesting journey. How do you then determine like where the most value is, uh, in kind of all of that process? So like once you've gone through the process of, you know, talking to, to your users, which I think is, is, hugely, hugely critical. And then, you know, using a lot of the data and understanding it, uh, you know, how do you identify where the, the right, you know, product market fit might be, or, or the, the best segment to be targeting? Because like you said before, if you're targeting everybody, you, you're, you're not targeting anybody. So, so how do you go about that process? Um, there's two ways you can think about it. The first way is, uh, is, is easier. I think, uh, it's just ask in, in the quant, make sure you have some questions that get at willingness to pay so that you can then quantify either. There's lots of methodology on here. I don't want to bore the audience here, uh, but there's, there's, there's scientific, there are statistically meaningful ways to ask about willingness to pay. Don't just ask what you're willing to pay, but there's some questions to get at it. Uh, in a nuanced way that can help you attach a value to each of the segments directly in your research. The other way is as you're conducting the research, if you can tie a response back to an actual customer in your database and then look at the value of that customer with your historical data, uh, that's another way to validate. That one's a little bit trickier from a technology standpoint, but if you can do it that way, you can have much more specific data than, than the first approach. So it's a little bit of a, is, is this 80, 20 answer good for you? Then just ask a question or two that gets that willingness to pay in your survey. Uh, and if you have the resources and technical infrastructure, uh, if you can tie the survey responses back to your actual customer database and you know the lifetime value of every customer in your database, then that's, that's another approach you can take. Oh, that's, that's really interesting, especially using information that you already have to understand like where some of that, 
greatest value is because then, you know, you're not just one, you, you're not using any amount of guesswork. Like you're actually being able to quantify it and, and see historical too, which super interesting. Um, how do you get around like the idea that I, I I'm interested. I mean, you, you talked about some of the, uh, the methods and, and things like that. How do you get around the, the potential that, you know, somebody might lie to you and say they'll pay more than, than they re- are actually might be willing to pay. Like what, what, what are some of the risks there and, and how do you, you know, potentially get around it? Yeah, I think uh, a few points. One is, again, do some research. There's something called the Van Westendor pricing mm-hmm. meter, for example. There, there are, are techniques to get at removing some, but not all mm-hmm. of the bias. Uh, I think the other thing to think about is this is directionally accurate. Uh, meaning that if the survey comes back and says segment A is willing to pay $3,000 and segment B is willing to pay $6,000, you know that B is, is going to be a better uh, prospect for you. But I wouldn't say then, therefore, immediately change your price to $6,000. I think there's more testing and field work and there's a whole field of pr- pricing optimization out there. Um, so I would just say for, for this exercise, it's, it's, it's more important to look at the relative values. Uh, and then there's other things, price testing, pricing models to get at really refining what yeah. comes out of this research. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Uh, it, that it's, it's very directional and not necessarily like the, the actual pricing that you're, that you're doing, uh, again, it kind of goes back to it's the segmentation targeting that you're doing and you know, yeah. where's the the biggest value. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah. It's a data point, but there's yeah. other data points you should triangulate with. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. You know, we, we've, um, we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the, the segmentation and, um, you know, how to, how to go about it and things like that. If you're on a, a, a product team or you're, you're a product leader or, you know, in product development, uh, how can you maximize the odds that, that you're going to be successful using, uh, product segmentation and and pulling all of this data together and the the information and using that to you know create the best product uh, that you can. Like, what, what are some of the tips that you have for for those you know product leaders or or people in product development? Sure. From a development standpoint, I would say every single design choice you make, force yourself to ask answer the question: Which segment is this for? Um, in a, in a clean textbook world, ideally you'd have product one for segment one, product two for, for segment two, product three for segment three, but in a, in a world of limited resources, sometimes you need to have a a product that, that meets is, is satisfactory to multiple segments. So any given feature must be extremely relevant to at least one of the segments, but it'll be unlikely that all your features will resonate with, with all your segments uh, in that case. But then it's marketing's job when you get to launch launch phase to make sure that once you've identified what segment s- someone is in, you're, you're, you're talking up the right benefit set. Yeah. And I think that's another mistake we see is in marketing and sales, where you talk about all the benefits to all your customers, where really where this is where sales product and marketing alignment is so important. If we can say, hey, look, this segment really wants... Uh, I don't know. I'm just making up a, a you know, the, the strategic visionary statement segment really wants uh, uh, the, the data, the, the data analysis tool, the, the competitive intelligence tool and the uh, uh, I don't know, the, the uh, market entry exit tool versus the, the uh, operating uh, executive really wants the best, best practice optimizer, the KPI tracker. You know, I'm just trying to make yeah, a few, yeah. you know, you can have all these features in your product, 
But when, when you market or sell to, to the strategic visionary, you should talk up the, a different benefit and feature set than if you know, you're talking to, to the operator. Right. Right. No, that, that makes so much sense. How, how have you found or worked, you know, when you, when you work with, you know, some of these teams and, and companies, how have you helped you know, like the product and the marketing and the sales teams align on some of that? I, I imagine it can be difficult to get everybody aligned on, you know, what's the right yeah. way to do this. And, and, you know, here's, yeah. here's how we're, we're segmenting that. Like what have been some of the, the ways that you've successfully helped everybody align on some of those things? Yeah. yeah. A few things. Uh, one is, it's important that this is viewed as a multi uh, cross-functional initiative and really the CEO needs to be brought in. Sometimes people, people might say, Hey, the CEO, that's too low for the CEO. It's market research. It's come up with, you know, it's, it's, it's lower in the organization, but the CEO needs to be bought into this mindset that we're going to be thinking in terms of segments and everything we do, we need to be conscious of that. And if the CEO is not bought in, it's going to be a much tougher sell for example, for the marketing executive to convince the product executive that their work should be applied to their department. It needs to come from the top. Um, I think the second thing is when, when embarking in, in the, the research phase to, to generate hypotheses across the organization so that you're not limited to, to, to marketing's bias or products bias or sales bias as to who the segment should be and what's important to them, that you're casting a wide net and people feel bought into the process. However, I think the most important thing is a third point here, which is the data is there. That's why the data is so important that you can't argue with the data. Uh, and so, you know, you, you can get the top, top down buy-in, you can get people bought in by participating upfront in hypothesis generation. And again, at the end within the workshop that I described earlier, but the data is really the, the equalizer and who can argue with, with, with the data. Right. And I would say most people, when they see, when they go to that workshop and they kind of say, Hey, wait a minute. Oh, that makes so much sense. And light bulbs go off in everyone's head, whether you're product sales or marketing, once you see the data, you connect the dots and you immediately can say, I know exactly what I'm going to do to put this to work in my, my department. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. Having the, the, the data to actually back up the, the story. So having like the right story on what it is and then the data to show like, this is the reasons why, and, and being able to get everybody to understand here's what it is. And here's all of the supporting evidence because without that, it's, it's a much, you're right. Like it's always a much tougher sell to say, here's what we're doing. And there's no, like, there's not a lot of supporting evidence for it, but we just want everybody to, to believe. But if you can actually show, here's all of the data to support it. That's much, much, it's a much easier sell, much harder to argue with, you know, here's, here's the data behind it. Now that that's really good. And that probably goes not just for, uh, the, you know, marketing and sales and product getting bought in, but the, the organization as a whole in, you know, using segmentation and, uh, you know, direction and, and how we want to either position our products or, or market them or, uh, you know, create, uh, the both create the segments that we're targeting and then go out and actually do it. Has, has that been your experience so far as well? Yeah. I think you need to, within 90 days of fin- finishing any sort of segmentation project, you need to take action on it. So if you can't launch a product in 90 days, can, can you at least change your product marketing around what you have? Can you talk about the benefits that are most relevant to, to the target, to each target? Uh, can you think about from a, from a customer acquisition standpoint, can you write a, a white paper or some sort of lead magnet that resonates extremely well with each of the 
the the personas, the segments, uh, and and get get a, a, a short, small test out there into the market to see see what kind of leads you can generate with that. Sales, do the sales scripts need to be changed? Um, in product, you know, how do how do you need to reset the the pipeline? And I I think the key is comes back to metrics and KPIs and track. Uh, at the very least, track NPS by segment, so that gives you some some uh, some leading indicators as to what's going on. Uh, but definitely, where where feasible with your tech stack, track leads by segment, conversions by segment, retention by segment. So that gives the product sales and marketing teams feedback on what's working and what's not. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Have you in in doing this? Like, are there any examples of? like just great success stories that that you have felt like, Oh, there have been, um, you know, times where, uh, you know, things just, it all clicked and it all just really worked that, you know, for, for a company or for a team or for an organization that, uh, you know, they either were using segmentation, right. Or they weren't and they started and, and things just like really, uh, you know, kind of popped into place. Yeah, I can, I can give it an example. One of our clients, yeah. which is, uh, it's in the, uh, professional development and training space. When we first started working with them, the, there was a new CMO that was brought mm-hmm. in. And I guess the, the line from the old CMO was, uh, our market is anyone with a pulse. I think I may <laughs> even use that phrase earlier. Uh, so yeah, of course there were a lot, they did one campaign on LinkedIn. They spent $600,000 and got zero leads out of it, uh, or zero customers out of it. Uh, so there was definitely something that, that needed to be fixed. Um, they went out and did a, did, did follow that process. I just described, they identified their four high value segments, uh, and they changed everything they did. They, they changed their digital lead gen efforts and were able to reduce the acquisition costs by 80%, 80%. They were able to revamp the sales scripts and the sales processes to reduce close times by 50%, which has the effect of doubling your, your close rates. And then from a product development uh, standpoint, they realized that two of the four key segments uh, could, could benefit from a, a new set of products uh, that were relevant, for, um, uh, that they were kind of, t- you know, toying with and massaging, but once they learned, Hey, these two segments, this would be perfect for them. Then they could go full core press on, on promoting those new products to those two, two particular segments, um, which was, you know, another you know, kind of, uh, uh, eight, eight figure, pl- eight, eight, eight digit, uh, plus opportunity for them. Wow. That that's almost mind boggling. No, that's incredible. That's, really and I would cool. say all that, all that took only one year to get into place. Wow. So it's not like something that you do and three years down the line, whatever yeah. they got quick wins immediately. Yeah. I mean, that 80% reduction in acquisition costs happened immediately. Yeah. New products always take some time to develop and get to market, but this is not something that is a five-year payback period. And in fact, it's, um, it's something I warn people about is that people are like, well, segmentation sounds good, but I, I have all these plates I'm spinning right now. <laughs> uh, but the longer you wait to do it the right way, the more money you're leaving on the table. Right. Um, no, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's, that's a really great example. Are, are there any bad examples that come to mind? Like, while while we're talking about really great examples of, of some of anyone that was just like, no, we're not going to do this. And it just spun out of control. Uh, the saddest one is, uh, when I was at McKinsey, we, we charged someone $3 million to do a market segmentation and, uh, they, they sat on the PowerPoint deck and did nothing about it. I mean, it was, it was a great project there. They're, they're yeah. like, Oh yeah, it was great. We kind of learned a lot and thank you for doing that. And six months later, like, well, we kind of didn't get, so I always shed a tear whenever companies go through the effort of building the, the segments and personas the right way. And then they just, that ends up being an academic exercise. So <sighs> That's so sad. Uh, that that hurts a little bit. I'm I'm sure it hurts worse for you than 
than anybody yeah. but that yeah that stings just a little bit yeah no this is great I, I guess any any other thoughts on like segmentation and and the uh like how to do it or or, or the benefits from from you I mean, one tool that could be helpful if you're trying to convince your peers to to invest in and in doing a proper segmentation is we've, we've built a segmentation cal- upside calculator. So if you come to our website, sterlingwoods.com slash calculator, it's just three questions long and we'll, it will give you a, a quick quantification of how much money is being left on the table if you're in that 98% of companies <laughs> that have some room to improve. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, that's great. We'll put the link in the show notes for that uh, as well. No, that that's perfect. And let me just, let me ask you, um, you know, we've talked about some really great examples, but any kind of standout moments in your career so far, we we like to ask, you know, everybody who comes on, like what's been kind of your favorite moment of your career so far? I'm a huge baseball fan. So I'll get a little, uh, uh, nerdy here. Uh, I worked for this company called Trackman, uh, which they hired me because they had a product in golf, which measured ball flight and club swing and all that stuff. And they wanted to enter the baseball market. And so I guess my, my favorite, um, moment was we, I got to present at a saber metrics conference with some of our findings and our findings were around the importance of spin rate on the pitch and launch angle on the hit. And at the time, this was 10 years plus years ago, at the time, those were not metrics that anyone cared about. And a few of the people in the room, most of the room kind of was like, who's this nerd on stage? And like, I'm just going to have my speed gun and 98 miles per hour is king. And that's, that's all I care about. But there are a couple baseball executives in the room who did something about it. And they, they went on to, to, to recruit or, or trade for or sign more curveball pitchers with high spin rates or uh, hitters with a, with a better swing plane to get the ideal launch angle. They ended up uh, being able to go on to, to win world series and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool just to, to have a, a little mark on, on an industry I care so much about. That, that is a great moment. Wow. Um, that's very, very cool. Uh, congrats on that. Where, where can, uh, people find out more about you? You mentioned your website. Um, is there, is there anywhere else that, uh, people can go to find out more about you or market segmentation? Yeah, just come, come uh, add me on LinkedIn, okay. Rob Ristagno, R-I-S-T-A-G-N-O, uh, or of course, sterlingwoods.com is our website. Okay. Awesome. Uh, this has been a really, really helpful and interesting conversation, Rob. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, you know going through all this. I think this has been just an amazing, amazing uh, discussion. So appreciate it. And we Thanks, will put, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. We'll put those links in the show notes so uh, you can check those out as well. And then before you go, we usually ask everybody if they have a, any products, shout outs or gripes. So anything that you're using right now that uh, you're enjoying or that you're not like from a product standpoint that you just, you want to give a shout out or a gripe to. Uh, sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, I will give a positive shout out to Bose sleep buds. Uh, we have, as, as you, as I alluded to, we have a one-year-old who still doesn't sleep through the night. So first of all, a huge shout out to my wife, who's willing to get up in the middle of the night when she, when she wakes up. Uh, but, but she, she agrees that we both don't need to be sleep deprived. So, so sleep, uh, Bose sleep buds, they take, if you get some, they take a little tweaking. You have to get the, the, the right, uh, size and the right sound that helps you sleep, but they work really well. And if you have trouble sleeping through the night. Very nice. Okay. No, that's, yeah, I might have to look into that. I haven't, uh, I haven't really seen that, but that, that sounds, 
actually sounds really, really cool. Um, By the way, they don't do anything besides play white noise. So yeah. they don't double as headphones or anything yeah. like that. So they're a little pricey, yeah. uh, but if, but sleep's so important that it's worth the investment. Yeah, no, we, we, we love like white noise and all, all things white noise. So we like, we have a white noise machine and, and all of those things. So like mm. that, that's a uh, super interesting. I'll have to check that out. Um, that is, no, that's really good. Let me, I've got to, I just, I have to give another shout out to, to my, my earbuds as well. Like I, I use these all the time. Like we've had a couple, a couple gripes about Apple AirPods, uh, recently. And so like my, I use, I use the, the Jabra elite, uh, 85. And these are just like earbuds. They're, they, they're so good. Like, I just, I can't say enough about them. Like they just, they pair instantly every time I put them in and I use them all the time. So I just, I absolutely, absolutely love them. Like I have the 75. So I think, should I I upgrade to the 85? You totally worth. I I had the 75 too. And they're, they're sitting on my desk here somewhere. I have my, my desk is a mess, but yeah, they're, the great thing about them is they're just, they're, they're a little bit smaller. So like the profiles is a little Mm -hmm. bit smaller and, and everything, but, um, totally, totally worth it. So I use them at least a couple times a day while I'm nice. yeah, working out while I'm in the wood shop while I'm doing just about anything driving. Um, so anyway, they, I, they don't give me problems like AirPods do. So I just thought I'd give a shout out because we've had a couple gripes about the AirPods. So <laughs> anyway, Rob, it has been so great talking to you. Appreciate it again. And, uh, thank, thank you. Thanks Kyle. All right. Thank you everybody. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter product thinking at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.